Amen. You may be seated. And would you turn with me to Romans chapter 8? It's our last sermon in Romans 8. At least at this season. And Romans 8, beginning in verse 35, is the beginning of my text. But I'm actually going to go earlier. And so if you'd actually look down to verse 12, I want to read a few verses there in just a minute. It was 19 years ago this fall, boy, did I feel massive, massive emotion and massive insecurity. I had, and I knew she was right for me. And she was convinced I was not right for her. <laughs> and boy, from September of 2000 to Late November, it was a whirlwind of massive insecurity. I wanted her love. I wanted to feel the security of her love, and she didn't want anything to do with me. And, and thankfully, God in his mercy, big time mercy, uh, answered prayer, worked a miracle, and in November, we started a relationship and got engaged in January and got married in July. It went quick. And I remember even engagement. I was telling some of my kids recently, man, I just remember even that engagement. I was just, I struggled with security. Does she, she didn't answer her phone. We didn't have cell phones back then. She didn't answer the landline. Um, or she didn't reply that quick to my email. We had email then. Um, it, is there something wrong? Is, is she upset with me? Is, are all things on? I felt insecurity. Now, my guess is if you've ever felt insecure about something you really valued, some love or some relationship, it could be a parent, it could be your children, it could be a spouse or us or whatever it is, you know that insecurity and how painful how full of worry and anxiety it brings. God in his word intends for us to have the worry, the anxiety, the fears that come with being disconnected. And we, the Bible uses this word alienated, removed from the most solid and deep and lasting and only meaningful, deeply forever meaningful relationship that is in God to actually be restored and be so secure. So secure. Look, at me, look with me at verse 12 of Romans 8. Paul says, so then brothers, we are debtors. Now that doesn't sound good. Who wants to be a debtor of something? Who wants to be in debt? None of us do. But Paul is not saying this in a bad way. We are debtors. It would be like if I said, I have a debt to pay. I owe everything to my spouse or to someone that gave himself for me. We are debtors. Now he says, not to the flesh. That's the sinful the sinful heart of our lives, where that impulse that just says, me first. I want my own way. I want to be the center of my little world. 
We are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. Now he says something pretty bold. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. Now, Paul says elsewhere that everybody dies. So he isn't saying, you'll be one of the few. He's not just saying you're going to physically die like everybody else in the human race. He's actually talking about die spiritually there. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. You will go to hell. But if you, by the Spirit, put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Now, the point here is not you will not earn life by doing something. He's made it very clear in early parts of Romans that no one is justified before God other than by the grace of God through our faith in God's promise. But all those who have faith in God's promise receive a gift called the Holy Spirit, and that Holy Spirit starts to work in us. And so he goes on and he says, For all who are led by the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, are sons of God. For, if you, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. There's fear. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him, in order that we may be glorified with Him. Before we go to the main text, I just want you to let that sink in for a second. Are you a child of God? Have you received the spirit of adoption by which from within your heart, your heart cries out to God and says, I know He's my Father. I cry, Father. And is the Spirit testifying that you are His children? And if you're children, you're heirs with Him. He has an inheritance for you. He will not abandon you. He cares for you. He loves you. Now, he, and do you have a category in your life for that last phrase of verse 17? Provided we suffer with Him in order that we might be glorified with Him. Godhood in the Christian life, being a child of God, I should say. The path of discipleship includes suffering. And so with that in mind, I want us to ponder the text that we've been pondering for the last three weeks. We know that for those who love God, He works all things together for good to those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined you and me to be conformed into the image of His Son, that He, that's Jesus, would be the firstborn among many brothers. And for all those whom He predestined, He called. And all those whom He called, He justified. And all those whom He justified, He glorified. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not with Him graciously give us all things. So who shall bring any charge against God's chosen, his elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, he was raised. 
He's at the right hand of God, and he indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or danger or nakedness or sword as it is written in the Old Testament in Psalm 44:22 for your sake we are being killed all the day long we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered the psalmist said in the midst of righteousness they were being persecuted in the Old Testament then Paul resounds no And all these things, all these trials, all these tribulations, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels or rulers, nor things present, nor anything that's going to come, nor any powers, supernatural powers. Nor height, nor depth, nor anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? This this of God, or as Paul says it, in verse 35, the love of Christ. Will you, will you scan down verses 35 through 39? That's my text, 35 through 39. The love of Christ, in verse 35, it ends with. A few verses later, the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So we're talking about God's love that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord, and the love of Jesus Christ, who are together and one. It is one love. Now, in our day and age, it is very popular to talk about the love of God in exclusion to other aspects of love. I want us to understand that when John said it in 1 John, God is love, he meant that God is love. But as J.I. Packer, knowing God, points this out, God is love is not the full picture of all of the Bible. We must add to, not add to the fact that he's more, he's more than love, yes, but he also, God is light. When God is light, that means there's no darkness in him. He is completely pure and holy. And so for God to be love and God to be light, that means that God in his love will always pursue that which is holy and good and right in us, his people. And this morning, I want to talk about an aspect of God's love, and that is God's love towards his people. So in reality, the Bible makes it very clear that God is love, fully love, to all his people. And that is to create something in us. So Romans 8 all of Romans 8, including these amazing passages, like if God is for us. I mean, that's a, that's a bumper sticker or a slogan at a gym, which probably shouldn't be. It's not, that's not the point of that is. But like, if God is for us, who shall be against us? He'll give us all things. Who shall separate us from the love of God? They're awesome. But these verses were never intended 
to go to be given as promises to people who said, I want God's salvation, but I want to live the rest of my life in these live long days for myself, and I want the eternal security of Romans 8. That's not what these verses are intended for. These verses are not meant to comfort worldly Christians who say they're Christians, who have decided they're going to live their best life now and have heaven later. But instead, those that have come to realize they're so desperate in need of a Savior, and they have bowed the knee and trusted in Christ, and they have seen Jesus as their only treasure, and they've accepted the good news promise that if I but believe on him, he saves me. And they have now committed themselves to follow this Lord and Savior. And of course, they've learned that, boy, that's hard because there's something welling up in my heart. I'm, I'm full of sin, but, but he's going to save me. Who, in the end, no condemnation because I'm in Christ Jesus and I want to live the Christian life. And in fact, I want to live the obedient life. I want to live the sacrificial life. These verses of God's love are meant to make a people in here. I'm looking at all, I can't look at every face here, but most, I'm looking at you. It's meant to make you and me the type of people that are really humble and really happy and really sacrificial and really content and really thankful and really overflowing with a type of love to really messed up people. It is meant to create that kind of security in a, in, a, in a believer that has known this kind of love. In fact, it is meant to make us like Jesus. Conformed. If you were to just read and ponder, I mean, the theme of this ending, resounding thing, resounding passage is, God's for me because he loves me. He gave his son because he loves me. He'll give me all things because he loves me. He's conforming himself. He's conforming me to be like Jesus because he loves me. He loves me. What does that mean that God loves me? Well, in this text, verses 35 through 39, I want to just point out, it won't take, we're not going to go real long through each one of these, but seven things about God's love that are really true and really important, and I see in this text that maybe one or two will really stand out to you, but God's love isn't meant to be a, this, this intellectual, this, this studious exercise where we just learn things, put it in our heads and go, oh, that's neat. I just pray that God would just, he would woo us this morning. If you're not a Christian, he would woo you to see how good he is. He's so loving that way. And that you would see how, how much need of a savior you are and that you're in sin and you need a savior. And all of us that have already received that gift would again be so thankful that undeserving people like you and me could ever be saved by this kind of love. Here, let's just look at these seven. But before I do that, I just want to give to you a definition that's in the back of your notes. It's a, I put that on your notes or in the back of your, your bulletin. If you're in a small group, you can use this to discuss. If you have a family, I would encourage you to read this to your family in order to discuss it. If you are with a roommate or someone else at work or someone texts them this week this definition and say, boy, what do you think about this? Are you, are you pondering these reality? Think about this. This is from J.I. Packer in Knowing God, chapter 12, and his chapter on the love of God. It's just really helpful. 
God's love is an exercise of his goodness towards individual sinners, whereby, having identified himself with their welfare, he has given his son to be their savior and now brings them to know and enjoy him in a covenant relationship. Let me say that again, except slowly. God's love is an ex- it's an ex- exercise of his goodness. God is good all the time. He is good in this creation. He causes the sun to rise on the just and the unjust and the rains. He brings goodness upon the wickedness in this world. He doesn't crush them immediately. He shows patience. That's his goodness. But one manifestation of his goodness is his love that zeroes in on sinners like you and me. He zeroes in on sinners like you and me. Whereby he identifies with our welfare. He sees how bad a situation we're in. Read it in Colossians. Read it in Ephesians. We were dead in our trespasses. Dead people don't get alive unless it's a miracle or resurrection. Whereby he identifies with our welfare, we're in trouble. He has given his son to be our savior. Those four that got baptized last Sunday, Jesus is now my savior and my Lord. He saved me from my sin. And what does God do? He now brings us to know and enjoy him in covenant relationship. So there's, there's just something for you to chew on with your mind in meditation this week. Even more so, let these verses be something for you to meditate on. God's love is an exercise of his goodness, whereby to sinners, he has identified himself with our welfare, and he has given his son to be their savior, and now brings us to know and enjoy him in a, in a covenant relationship. Last Saturday, eight days ago, I married, I, they say I married, they married, they got married, God married. I was part of the marrying process as a minister, and I married Matt and Tori Porter. They made a covenant together, this commitment to one another. The Bible speaks in terms of covenant before us and God, where Jesus was the mediator that brought us into this covenant and made it possible and allows us to keep the covenant. We could never keep this covenant on our own. He keeps us, keeps us in that covenant. When, when Paul says, if, for, if God is for us, that's covenantal language. He's for us. It doesn't mean he's our fan. He's cheering us on the sidelines like a good soccer mom. That's not what he means. He's for us means he's covenantally committed to saying, I'm going to keep every promise that I made. I will not stop doing you truly good. And good is defined by me, the only author of all true good. And that is to make you like me. And and I gave you a human picture of what me will look like as a human. And that's Jesus Christ. And I'm going to make you like my son. And you will forever be like this. And I am in the process of doing that. Okay. With that in mind, let's just, let's ponder these seven things. One, God's love is secure. God's love is secure. That, that's what we get in this question. The question is made us to, it causes us to, to, to say, ah, secure. Who? And, and Paul's answer is, I'm sure that nothing will. Nothing. 
He gives that list of life or death, death or life, angels or rulers or powers, things present and future, heights or death or anything else in all creation will not be able to separate us from the love of God. He says it is so secure. This love sticks. We live in an age where there's covenant relationships where they do not stick. We know it because of sin. Sometimes one person sin or the other or both. It's part of the nature of this broken world. We will not escape the fact that covenants are broken. But with God, His love is secure. He will never break His covenant. He cannot lie. He cannot be unfaithful. And He, Paul, wants us to get this fact that nothing will separate us from this love. In fact, he's just made a case. Our sin will not separate us from God's love because it is God that justifies and Christ died and he's interceding for us. He is our substitute. There's another thing that might separate us is all these trials and tribulations he's going to describe. Will they cause us to curse God and die? Give up? I mean, there are people that they leave the faith because dad died and got cancer and he didn't deserve it. And I feel aggrieved for them because it's devastating. Don't make light of that. People go through cancer or child loss and they leave the faith. Is that what he... Paul says, for those who are truly mine, I, I'm going to keep you in all these distresses. I'll turn your trials, your losses and crosses into a means of victory, my love is secure. It's sticky. It never, I, you will not get yourself detached from my love. The obstacle of sin, it's taken care of because God loves you. Security is meant to bring, I was, I was sweating it for a moment, but I got that love letter from her. And, and she still loves me. God's, God's love is meant. Nothing will separate you from my love. I'm for you. You're under the knife of the surgeon, under the poison of chemo, over the tribulation of financial distress, over the pain of relational distress from a, a spouse that is leaving you or distant from you, or children that are wandering from the faith, I will not leave you or forsake you. I am your God. I will, I will be there for you. I will be at, your, I'm your, at the right hand, and I care for you. The point of this is to make us go, don't fear the loss that's in your life as though it will be a loss of his love. It is so good that God loves us and any loss that he brings into our life, he turns for good because nothing will separate you and me from the love of God. Now that, that, that's enough. You just sing a song. He will hold me fast. He will hold me fast. Oh, my Savior loves me. He will hold me fast. Number two, God's love is mysterious. It's mysterious. You know what I mean. Maybe you don't know what I mean yet, but when I say it, you're going to know what I mean. God's love comes and looks like medicine sometimes that doesn't taste good. 
but it comes from the wise physician's hand. No wise father, or any wise father will discipline his children, but the child it is. God's love is mysterious. And in the pa- passage of this, this thing, the, this passage, Paul isn't saying, who shall separate you from the love of God? Now, once you're now a Christian, all things are going to just start turning out for you. Things are just going to fall into place. Everything is going to go good. Everything well. Paul would say, no, if you accept Christ, you're signing up for possible death by Nero and his group in Rome. You, you will be persecuted as a Christian. In fact, your family might disown you. Your society may ostracize you. Jesus is so much better. But God's love is mysterious, and so he lists, shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine, nakedness, danger, sword. By the way, Paul will be killed by beheading with a sword. His answer is, all those things will happen to some Christians, and probably you in some way, excluding distress, burden of heart, tribulation. We call them crosses sometimes. It's a metaphor. We call them trials. We call them afflictions. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, Psalm 119 says. But the Lord delivers them out of them all. God's love is mysterious because, you see, Paul wants us and God wants us to know that it's still God's love. It may not look like love, but God camouflages his love and victories through what seems like defeats or setbacks or trials. He wants to build faith and trust in him. He grows character so that it, four chapters earlier, three chapters earlier, Paul writes in chapter 5 of Romans, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. I, he says, we are, we, we are worshiping because there's going to be the hope of God glorifying us and all things being made right, all tears being wiped away. I want that. Do you want that? But then he says this, and we rejoice in our sufferings because we know that sufferings produce endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope will not disappoint because God's love is shed abroad. There's God's love again. It's shed abroad in our heart, or literally it's poured out in our heart through the Holy Spirit that is given to us. So Paul is saying to his children, God's love might be mysterious. It might be through the means of you being afflicted with financial woe, through a physical malady in your life, trials, physical problems. It it might not be a death sentence, but it might just be lifelong pain. It might be through just the stresses, the ordinary mundane stresses of this week. God's love is working all things together for good. And he is giving and withholding, and he will give you all things that you need because his love endures in order to make you like his son. Satan is attacking, the world is attacking, sin in our flesh is attacking, and enemies will accuse and attack you. But God is at work in our lives, and he and his love will never cease. So, brothers and sisters, 
God's love is mysterious, so we need to trust him when we do not see his hand. God works in mysterious ways, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea, the trial, and he rides on the storm. God's love is secure and it's mysterious. Third, I want you to see that God's love is successful. God's love is successful. His, his love towards his people always wins in the end. That's, that's where we see that verse, no. In all these things, look at verse 37. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. He's saying in these things, what has he been talking about? These trials and tribulations and distress and nakedness and danger and famine. All these, he's, it just, it's a list of things that says, Enemies and trials, will they separate you from the love of God? He said, no, in these things, we're conquerors. The idea is we are, it's, this, it's, a, double, it's a compound word that says we are extra. We are more triumphant. We triumphant. We don't just like stay neutral or just we're surviving. I guess we made it. We're doing okay. We're doing fair. He says, we triumph over and abundantly. And he says, through him who loved us. What does he mean by that? I think what he means by this, because of God's sovereign way of working mysteriously, where God wants to build our trust, God has lessons to grow us in the mysteries of pain through the trials that we face. He wants to grow us to be like Jesus, that he takes all of those crosses, those enemies, those difficulties in our lives, and he says, no, in those, through my love working in you. I have predestined to conform you into the image of my son, and so I'm going to work all things together for good, including what you're facing this week. And I know that probably some of you are sitting here thinking about things this week that are really hard. You see, God's love is always successful. Christ Jesus' love to his people is always successful. This is what Paul said when he said to husbands, love your wives. And then he says, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. In order, why? In order that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. It is Jesus' mission, stated mission, that he will love the church to the end and make the church of Jesus Christ, his people, really beautiful for that last day. He's committed to doing that. He's going to be successful in doing that. His love is successful, and it is meant to Cause our hearts to rejoice that because Jesus loves me, he will not let me go, but he is going to work in my life. He cares about me too much to leave me to the idols of money, of human relationships, of, of human, the security of good health and long life. Not promised. He loves me too much because he, he wants me to trust and delight in him more. Jesus is committed to this, and so he loves it. Husbands, love your wife like that kind of love. 
who pursues our greatest good in love, he adopted us. He predestined us to adoption according to the purpose of his will. Titus 2 says he gave himself up for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people who are his possession, zealous for good works. That's what he did that for. His love is successful. So, brother and sister, because God's love is successful, trust in him. Keep your eye on the prize. Don't forget what the big picture is about. Said last week, there's two phases in life. Phase one is our life here before our death or his return, and it's short. Phase two is after our death when he returns the glory forever and ever and ever. And God loves us so much that he's preparing us for eternal joy here. That short-term pain is acceptable. Number four, I want you to see that God's love is personal. See, God's love is personal. And what I mean by that is, it's not just like this business contract contraction from a divine being towards certain individual creatures. No, he cares for us. He loves us personally. Last week I said not only does he love us, he likes us. It's not some kind of mechanical or detached way. How can you not read verse 37 and, and get that? No, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Or, or in verse 32, he did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not with him graciously give us all things? He, he loves us. It's personal. You could spend a lot of time this week meditating on Galatians 2.20, where Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, and the life I now live in this body, the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me, and he gave himself for me. He loved me. Brothers and sisters, he loved you and gave himself for you. God gave his own son for you. He loves you. It's personal. If, it's, if he gave his son, how will he not give you all things? He won't spare anything that you truly need. His love is personal. And so remember that he really cares for you when you're going through the trial. And number five, his love is corporate. I... One thing that's easy to miss in these verses is that Paul is actually using first-person plural. If you're not a grammar person, that means us, we. He uses that a lot in where he says, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Who shall separate us from the love of God? By this... He is not just saying it's an individual affair. It is. He saves individuals, but he's saving a people. It's through, he loves us together. We can all look around and say, he loves us together. When we take communion, we should walk up these aisles, come to take communion and go, he loves her too and me. Isn't that awesome? He, called, he included us in this. 
And we're to be together in this. Now, this is life, our covenant life that we're going to participate in just a couple minutes, our members meeting. But I want you to think of it in terms of this. I've talked a lot about the mystery love. God's mystery, his love is mysterious. It just means it's successful and he's going to use trials. Do you want, I just want you to think in terms of this. Your trials this week and this year are not just God working for your good and loving you. He's probably loving other people through his loving you in that trial. How many people, my faith has been built up. I'll just say this, because of glorious faith, she needs a heart transplant. And I've seen her, her body, humanly, is wasting away at certain things, and the doctor is saying, you need this to live long. And yet her inner person is being renewed day by day. Her suffering is God loving her to the end forever. But it's also God loving me because I'm in relationship with her as a church, as a pastor and as a fellow member. And I'm built up in my faith. And I'm like, God can be faithful to her and help her be faithful to me if I, when I go through that trial. When, as I see God faithful to Bjorn, my brother-in-law, in cancer, or you in cancer, and though it's hard and you have those dark moments of the soul, those nights that are so painful, you keep looking up to Christ. Others that are watching you. That love is corporate. God's loving other people through your being made like Jesus and they're made like Jesus by being attached to you in relationships. I don't know if that makes sense. I hope it does. We are building, your trial isn't just for you. Your affliction is not just for you, but God in his mercy is doing 10,000 things infinite amount of things in people's lives, working all these things together for good because in his wisdom, in his might, in his love, in his sovereign grace, he is in this world creating a tapestry that on the backside looks ugly, but in the end will look glorious. And we will rejoice for 10 trillion years at his brilliant wisdom and love towards you and me. It's corporate. I picked on Gloria, but I think of many others in this congregation who your trial is for my good, is for others' good. And I've seen that at at work. And number six, God's love is limitless. God's love is limitless. Do you see that? Like, I'm sure that death or life won't separate. You die, you're with Christ. It's better, Paul says in Philippians. And in my life, or angels and rulers, here he's getting into the spiritual warfare. There are demons. and wants you to fail. and to, I mean, he wanted you not be here this morning. He didn't, he, surely this week doesn't want you reading God's word. He doesn't want you to believe in his promises. He doesn't want you to remember the truth today. He doesn't want you to understand it. He wants you to sleep. He wants you to be distracted. He wants our souls to be devoured. He wants you to go after each other, to complain, to be frustrated, to view the mystery of his trials as, as something that God just doesn't love me anymore. God's love is limitless, and he says, those angels and rulers, they can't separate you from my love because my love prevails over them. It's limitless. 
height or depth or anything in all creation. His point is, I was thrilled when I got married to Molly in July 7, 2001. We made a covenant together. Till death do we part. It's not secure like God's love. Because one of us will die first. And death till we part. The covenant goes till we die. God's love is limitless. Because death nor life will be able to separate us from this covenantal love to God. No other promise keeper can do that. It's limitless in so many regards. The limitlessness of a God who can actually say, I work all things together for good. No one else can say that in a relationship. All, no good thing will I withhold from those who walk uprightly. The Lord is your shepherd, therefore you shall not want. Faith Church, God's love is limitless, so remember that all things are in his hands. All things. And lastly, God's love is in Christ. God's love is in Christ. Nothing shall separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. God's love is because of Jesus Christ. And God's love is manifested by sending Jesus Christ. He loves us by not sparing his son, but delivering him up for us all. There is no love apart from the work of Christ. God loved us and sent his son. The son loved us and gave himself. Both loved us. What a beautiful divine conspiracy in love towards us. He zeroed in and came in and loved sinners, saving us. So, how then shall we live? I plead with you, if you are here and you have not been born again, have not repented of all your sins and looked to Christ, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That believing means that a wholehearted, I want Jesus and not myself anymore. He is the only Savior of my soul and I want to accept him for what he did on the cross and I want to give myself to him. I can't earn his favor, but I know that I got his favor because of what Jesus did and that love is shed abroad on you. But what about us that are believers here today? How should we then live? With security and there is meant to be a comfort, not human comfort. We just said tribulation and distress, but an internal comfort, a confidence, a trust, a peace, a hope, a contentment. It should cause us to love one another. If God so loved us, should we not love our brothers and sisters in Christ? Don't say you know the love of God experientially to its, the extent God wants you to know it until you, it starts to move from yourself to your children. You love your children because you've got, you know God's love. And you love your spouse because you know God's love. And you, you love your church members and you covenant with them because you know God's love. And your neighbors... They're your mission because you, you love them because God loves you. So I want to end with what J.I. Packer says in the end of his chapter on love. I, this is so beautifully said. In fact, I'm going to invite the worship team to come up. We're going to wrap up with singing about not I, but through Christ in me. 
Listen to these words. Is it true that God is love to me as a Christian? And does the love of God mean all that has been said? If so, certain questions arise. Why do I ever grumble and show discontent and resentment at the circumstances in which God has placed me? Why am I ever distrustful, fearful, or depressed? Why do I ever allow myself to grow cold, formal, half-hearted in the service of God who loves me so? Why do I ever allow my loyalties to be divided so that God has not all my heart? John wrote that God is love in order that to make the ethical point, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Could an observer learn from the quality and degree of love that I show to others, to my wife or my husband or my family or my neighbors, people at church, people at work, anything at all about the greatness of God's love to me? Meditate on these things. Examine yourself. God, please help us.